So Judges 13. So basically where we left off last week, and, and actually I just realized today, and I had in my mind that we were getting to Samson this week, and we were just going to start with Samson. So that's what we're going to do. But I missed chapter 12. So chapter 12, I think we've, we were trying to get through chapter 12 last week, and as I was going through it this week, I realized that I didn't finish this story. And there's a kind of a really sordid story in chapter 12. You're just going to have to read it. It's the story about the guy who kills his own daughter um, because he made a vow, and he gets home from the battle, and God gave him a victory. And he says the first thing he sees he's going to kill, and his daughter comes out, and he has to kill his daughter. And, and, and one of the things we talked about last week, even through this section, is, you know— I, so many of these things in Greek mythology and so many things we see in movies and different things, you, you find these similar stories in the Bible. And, and my point in that is that is that this stuff comes from the word of God and that these stories that are that are really ancient that people knew, you know, that men didn't make them up. They, they came from the word of God. They were actual stories that they've been perverted and turned into Greek myths and legends and different things. And I think it's Agamemnon in the in the story of Achilles who going into battle at Troy um, kills his first his daughter his only daughter um, as a as a sacrifice to the gods before he goes in. Well, you see that happen here in the Bible, and like I said, you just find little things. I'm not making any points with that, guys. I'm not making connections. I'm not getting weird with any of that. I'm just telling you that as we read through this stuff, we see so many similarities to Greek folklore and legends and those things. So that's twelve, and then as we get into thirteen, um, we we begin this story of Samson. Now Samson is. Um, of all the judges, the most um, real estate is dedicated to his story. Four chapters of the life of Samson. Remember last week we went through some of the judges, and some of them were great judges. The guy that was his name was Worm, and we, we made the connection between him and, and Jesus. And um, but he gets one verse. This particular um, judge lived and died, and and um, even Gideon, who gets so much press, didn't get four chapters. Samson is also, you can make a note, mentioned in the Faith Hall of Fame. And so um, we have Samson who, who finishes in the Faith Hall of Fame where God doesn't list any of his weaknesses. And the thing I think we focused on mostly last week, I was thinking of Matt and Rachel because um, for the Gideon story and they weren't in here. I prepared this message for them and then they didn't come. But um, no, I'm just kidding. They were here. They were just in youth group. But in the life of Gideon, um, you know, and, and again, I think we, we kind of treaded lightly, and, and I was careful. I, ha- I had this thing all squared away, and then I, and then I messed it up before I came back out. Um, it, in the story of Gideon, one of the things that we, we talked about in, in depth last week was the idea that there's two different ways that we, we walk through this Christian life. And the Christian life is a marathon, right? Remember last week we talked about starting well and then doing what? What? Who was here last week? We talked about finishing well. Like there's something about finishing well, that the Christian life is a marathon. And it's one thing to start well, and it's another thing to finish well. And in order for all of us to finish well, we have to understand that that, that this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's something that we do day after day after year after year. And it's that we have to stay close to Jesus. It's something that we have to rely on God. And, And we questioned a little bit the end of Gideon's life because Gideon made some choices. And I was careful not to judge Gideon too much and then pointed out that, um, in Hebrews, God doesn't mention any of those failures, but you don't necessarily see at the end of Gideon's life, him doing the things that he did in the beginning. And, and he got a little, a little, a little sideways towards the end of his life and had tons of wives and 70 kids and 
named one of his sons. You know, he told the people that he didn't want to rule over him, that God would rule over him, which was a crowning moment. And then the next son that he had from a, after having 70 wives and a concubine, he has a, a, a prostitute, a harlot that's in, um, what city was she in? Shechem, that, that he goes to and has a son with. And he names that son, my father is king. And so um, just some things at the end of his life. Now in Samson's life, we have completely the opposite. Samson is somebody who, which is very, I think it's kind of unique in the word of God. It maybe would fit more to some of us, but Samson's character is not one who, who his is the opposite. Samson finished well. Samson's greatest victory came at the end of his life. And so he doesn't start so well. And really all the way through Samson's life, like you scratch your head trying to figure this guy out. You really can't. The decisions that he makes, like with Delilah, Samson and Delilah. And for, for anybody who's not familiar with the story of Samson and Delilah, basically that's the story we'll get. I don't think we'll get to it tonight, but Samson and Delilah, it's the one where she comes in and she says, what's the key to your great strength? And then he says, if somebody ties me with new ropes, I'll be as weak as any other man. And he wakes up and he's tied with new ropes. So she tied him with new ropes and she's yelling at him, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And the Philistines are coming in to kill him and he gets up and he breaks the ropes because that had nothing to do with his strength. And he kills all these Philistines. And then Delilah says the next night, like, you lied. Like, why won't you tell me what, the, what, what your strength is? And he says to her, well, if you braid my hair and, and, and that's the key to my strength, if you braid my hair, then I'll be as weak as any other man. And guess how he wakes up the next morning? With his hair all braided and, and Delilah screaming at him, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he wakes up and he kills the Philistines. And this goes on several times. And, and then um, he finally tells her what, what the key to his strength is. She shaves his head while he's sleeping. He wakes up and she says, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he gets up as other times. And the Bible says one of the most scary verses in all the word of God. It says that the spirit of God had left him and he didn't know it. And he woke up and the, and the, and the, and the Philistines take him and they, they gouge out both of his eyes and they put him around a mill. And, and the story we'll get to next week is one that's pretty cliche in, in, in teaching through Samson is that the sin of Samson, that it binds, it blinds, and it grinds. And that's what sin does in our lives. And we're going to see where Samson is turned into this mule that goes around in a circle. And, and you think, why in the world? Now, how many of you guys, if you're in Samson's shoes and Delilah... She's asking you what the key to your strength is and you tell her new ropes and you wake up in the morning and you got new ropes around your, around your edge. And then you tell her braid your hair and the next day you braid, you, she braids your hair and brings these bad guys in to kill you. How many of you guys would tell her what the actual key to your strength was? <laughs> like, like how, it just, it's baffles you, right? It's, it, 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 it baffles you that he was so dumb like, who would do that? Like, you couldn't figure this out by now? Like, and you can't see what's going on. And so you read this story and your mind just goes. But, and, and again, we'll, we'll unpack that stuff. And that's really for next week. But the, the, the skinny of it is, is that that's what sin does in our lives. You know, you guys know anybody that's addicted to drugs or alcohol? And you, and you see them keep going back to their vomit, right? And you keep seeing this, this lifestyle that's self-destructive and that it's, it's destroying their lives and they continue to do the same thing. And maybe somebody who's sober on the outside is watching somebody's life who's so self-destructive and you're doing the same thing as you read the story of Samson, right? You're, you're scratching your head and you're going, why would you do that again? Why would you go back to that same thing? 
And it makes no sense, but that, that, that addiction just takes over. And so Samson had, in the beginning of his life, lots of troubles, but he, he finished really well. And Samson, without a doubt, is in heaven. He's in the Faith Hall of Fame. He's a giant of faith among the Hebrews. He, Samson has potential, had potential, and he didn't live up to it. But listen, Samson had potential to absolutely be the greatest Hebrew that ever lived. The greatest Hebrew um, patriarch that ever lived. And, and, and his feats and his ability and his call of God was so unique that only one other person in all of human history had a call similar to Samson. And that was J the B. John the Baptist, right, who was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb and, and had a similar vow that, that, that Samson had. So we're going to kind of jam through some of this, you guys, um, and, and get through it. And I, like I said, I don't think we'll get into 16 tonight where we'll find Delilah. We'll save that for when I get back. But, um, but let's check it. So it says in verse 13, again, somebody say again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So what is the cycle of Judges? It's right there in verse 1, right? Again, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, last week, hey, look with me if you would real quick. Oh, I shouldn't have said that because I'm not going to find it. Okay, look at, look at chapter 10, verse 13. And God says, you have forsaken me and served other gods, and therefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry to the other gods which you have chosen, and let them deliver you in the time of distress. And so, you know, the people are calling out to God and he says to them, you know, go, go and cry. How many of you guys said that to your kids before? <laughs> oh, cry, baby, go over there and cry. Leave me alone, you know. And, and, and God is kind of feeling that about his kids. And then if you got a little blonde hair, blue eye baby like I do, that don't work very long, right? And eventually, you know, you, you go and you give her candy. And we went to lunch with some folks on Sunday and I was telling them how, how bad I am with Gabrielle, like just no discipline, very little and so spoiled. And, you know, and it was fun for a long time, but it's, it's, it's starting to bite me in the butt a little bit and it's going to get bad. I got to deal with it. So Sunday or not Sunday, one day, Monday, we're in the house and I have my water on my nightstand and I go in the bathroom and I come out and she, she's got the lid off of my water and she's soaking wet and the, and my bed and pillow are completely wet from where she just dumped my water all over herself. So I, I, I say something to her, and oh my God, and she gets up, and she's got, it's an igloo cup, you know, like a Yeti cup. I think Chris gave it to me for Christmas, and she's got the lid in one hand and the straw in the other hand, and she's running from me. So I get her cornered, and I tell her to give it to me, and she puts them both behind her back, and she looks at me, and she goes, no! <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, this is getting out of control. So I go and get candy. And I say, well, if I give you some candy, will you give it to me? <laughs> and um, so, so I, I get them from her with some candy. And then we go in the kitchen, and the boys left the cereal from breakfast on the table. And so there's a box of cereal on the table, and the bag is separated from the box. And I'm in the sink doing something, and she's at the table, which is me to Dan. It's not very far. And she grabs the, the bag of the cereal, and she's, she's getting ready to dump it on the table. And I see this motion like this going up over the, the top. And I'm yelling at her, like running towards her, no! And sure enough, she gets that whole bag of cereal dumped out all over the table. That was enough. She did, she did get a, sm a spanking on the hand after that one. So I said, no. And I put her in a seat, and I made her sit down. And she, I was just me and her. And she gets up, and she runs down the hallway yelling for mom. And I tell her, mom's not here, you know, sit down. But I, I, uh, 
I, I really didn't bribe her with candy over the things. I was just kidding about that. That was a joke. <laughs> that, 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 that would be a little over the top even for me. I, I did make her give me the lid and the straw, but I didn't get, she didn't spank her or nothing. But it's time, right? But all that to say, look, look at verse number um, 16, chapter 10, verse 16. It says, so they, they put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. Listen, and his soul could no longer endure what? The misery of Israel. And, and what we talked about last week is basically that's the heart of God for his people. That's the heart of God, I believe, even for us when we cry out to God. And the heart of a father for a spoiled child is that even though they deserved it and God, what he wanted to say to him and what he did say to him was go in the corner and cry because you deserve that. Stop, stop calling out to me because you're, you're not taking my advice. You're not letting me help you. But then it says in his heart that he couldn't handle their misery. He couldn't watch them being in that place. And that's really the, the, the idea of judges all the way through is that even though they really didn't deserve any of God's blessing and for deliverance and, and how many times this pattern just repeats itself. He raises up a judge. He delivers them. They go back into, into worshiping mannequins instead of the living God and and these idols and these things we talked about last week. And then, um, and then God shows up and deliver. And what's interesting about 13 that's different from the others is there's no mention or record of them crying out to God. The 40 years that it mentions in verse number one, um, that the Philistines had um, um, whatever for 40 years, had oppressed them is the word I'm looking for, oppressed them for 40 years. That there's no, you know, and, and all the other mentions, it's that they, they would cry out to God and then God would respond. But here in the Samson story, which is interesting, unique, just make a note. It's, it's not neither here nor there. But there's really no record of them crying out and calling for God to come and, and deliver them. Now, I want to mention something about the Philistines because the people that are in the land of Israel today that we call Palestinians, um, people would say or like to say that they're the ancient Philistines of 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 the Old Testament and that they're an indigenous people that were there. And, and they're not, first of all. The, the name Palestine um, was given as a um, as an insult to Israel because the most ancient enemy of Israel was the Philistines. And so Palestine was a name that was um, applied to this area. And it means the, the, the place of the Philistines. And, and, and but Palestine was Palestine was just a name. But the people, the indigenous people or the people that are there in Israel today that are Palestinians, they're, they're not the same group of people. These the Palestinians of today are from Jordan and from Egypt. And they're they're immigrants that have migrated from neighboring um, Arab countries. And that's that's just fact. That's just DNA that, that they're for their people primarily with Jordan descent. The ancient Philistine people were seafaring people. They were people that have been in the Holy Land um, for a long, long, long time um, that, that either would predate or, or about the time that Israel was there as well. And, and the, the Philistines, they, they were very um, successful because they were seafaring people. They were uh, kind of like a, a, what are those, a Viking type of people, the Philistines were. They traveled a lot. They used the oceans. They set up on the edge of the Mediterranean, even in the place today that, that is called the Gaza Strip. There was five major Philistine cities that you'll find throughout the Bible. And I don't have them written down. I could try crack at the name of the five cities, but it's neither here nor there. But I can think of Dad, Dodd and Dad and Dodd, Ashkelon, Gad, 
um, and these five Philistine cities that were there. The Philistines had um, technology. They had metal weapons and metallurgy. Israel, for a time in their history, didn't have um, the same technology that the Philistines had. And you read like in um, Samuel, before King David, at the time of um, jo- uh, Jonathan and his father, which they had swords. Jonathan and his dad, the Bible says, had swords. But the Bible records that at that point in Israel's history that they would go down into the Philistine country to do what? Does anybody remember? Trivia? What, what was Israel doing in Philistine country during that time? They were bringing their farm instruments to have the Philistines sharpen them. So the goads for their, um, for their plows and the different metallurgy that needed to be um, sharpened and taken care of. Israel didn't have the technology to do it. And so they would go down to, um, to the Philistine country, as recorded in the word, and, and have their instruments sharpened. And so this is the group that's called the Philistines that were there that God uses continually all the way through to King David. And really it's King David and, um, and his group that you know, continues to fight and eventually um, kind of never really, but has victory over the final victory over the Philistines. All right, that was verse one. 17 minutes left. And now there was a certain man from Zoar, the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and he had no children. Now, what was his wife's name? Trivia. You don't know? I don't know either. Because the Bible doesn't tell us. It just tells us that, that this woman, and every time she's, she's mentioned through this whole chapter, we never get a name. So when you get to heaven, go find her and ask her what her name is. And then you'll know, and you could fill it in here in your Bible, but it never tells us. It just keeps calling us a woman, the wife of Manoah. But the, for whatever reason, no mention of her name. And, and again, no record of prayer, no record of them praying to God. Do you remember with um, Hannah, who was Samuel's mom in 1 Samuel, it says constantly she was barren and she was without children and she was constantly praying and asking God for a child. And then God gave her Samuel. And you see that recorded like with um, Sarah, um, who was Sarai, who was named Samuel Sarah. And she's constantly praying. You see her recorded where she's praying and asking God for a child. Well, no mention here in this story of any devotion or any prayer from his parents. Although I think they were good parents. And it says in verse 3, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And so, and it says, now, therefore, please be careful to drink, not to, not to drink wine or similar drink or anything or eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son and no razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite from the womb and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So somebody say Nazarite. So a Nazarite vow is something that, that you guys might hear in biblical circles, and it's kind of biblical, not to be confused with the term Nazarene. Some people get that confused. It has nothing to do. It's two separate terms, two separate ideas. A Nazarene is just simply somebody who's from Nazareth. A Nazarite is a vow. Everybody write down Numbers chapter 6 in your margin there. It's where God lays out for Moses the law of a Nazarite. And there were three things that a Nazarite was not supposed to do. Okay, number one, a Nazarite was to drink no wine. So anything to do with wine, that means vineyards, that means um, grapes. They weren't even to eat raisins because it was, it was a fruit of the vine. 
Um, so nothing to do with wine or raisins or grapes or vineyards, completely cut out. And, and part of it is um, that, that wine in the Bible is a symbol of joy. And so wine always talks about joy and joy in the life of a believer. Or that it's a symbol of joy. And the whole point of a Nazarite, to, to kind of back up before I get into the three, I probably should have started here. The idea of a Nazarite vow is basically to separate yourself unto God. Okay, everybody say separate. Okay, so men, we just did a 21-day fast. Okay, so that would be similar today to something that we would do with the same heart, right? Maybe not the same exact application, but definitely the same heart. We want to, we want to take 21 days and we want to separate ourselves unto God. We, we want to take a time to focus on God. We want to take a time to, to do something in our life, which in this case is fasting from food that constantly reminds us of God. It constantly puts us in a position where we're, we're remembering to pray and be focused on God and be focused in the word of God. And so the idea of a Nazarite vow biblically was just that. It was a, it was a time of separation to be sanctified, separated unto God. Normally, what you see in the in the in the in a Nazarite vow from Numbers chapter six was a period of time. People would take a month, they would take six months, maybe a year, but but never never a, a life of a Nazarite vow. You only see it twice in all the Bible, and and it would even you know maybe be a little muddled when it comes to John the Baptist. But you have you have here you have Samson. And in the New Testament, you have J the B, and, and J the B, as you know, is not a New Testament prophet. He's an Old Testament prophet. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, so both of them in the Old Testament. Paul, there's a little mention in, in Acts 21 where Paul does something that's very similar to a Nazarite vow, and the Jews say, hey, Paul, you know, the Jews, the devout Jews in Israel, they're saying that, you know, you're, you're against the law, and we have these boys that are ready to take a vow, and, you know, would you sponsor them and pay for them, and then, you know, be with them, come with them in the temple, so that when the razor comes on their head, that, that the other Jews can see you being a part of this. And so Paul did it, turned out terrible. They, they got all mad at him. They said that he was bringing Hellenists and Jews in the temple and they, they arrested him and were ready to beat him up in Israel, in, in Jerusalem. But, but that would maybe be another example and probably another isolated example where we see the Nazarite vow. Because when it says the boys, were, when they're going to bring him in the temple and put a razor to their head, that was because they had been living a Nazarite vow up to that point. They had let their hair grow and then the razor was going to come to their head. So the three things that the Nazarite vow included was no wine, joy of life, separating yourself unto God in that part. The second thing was not to cut your hair. Now, Paul tells us in the New Testament, for, for Jewish culture and Jewish custom all the way through um, biblically, it was a shame for a man to have long hair. And, and Paul says that in the New Testament, he said, common sense tells you that men shouldn't wear long hair because you work with your hands and you're, you're doing deeds. And you're, if your hair is in your face and you got all this long hair and it's in the way, and he says, nature tells you, human nature tells you that men shouldn't have long hair. But biblically, nowhere in scripture, old or new, does God say you can't have long hair as a man. But Paul says, and you know, sometimes Paul says, you know, there's another place where when Paul's talking about dating and sex and different things. And he says, you know, I speak concerning, um, you know, not me, but the Lord. Or not the Lord, but me. Like, this is my opinion. This is not necessarily bond. It's not gospel. It's not thus saith the Lord. It's my opinion on the subject. And so even in that area where in Corinthians there were Paul saying that it's a shame that, that he's, the Bible's not necessarily saying that men can't have long hair. It also says that women should have what? Should have long hair. 
and that should be covered, and the beauty of a woman is her long hair. Um, but again, so the idea of not cutting your hair, it, 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 it's, 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 it's a shame. Culturally, it was a shame for a man to have long hair. And so you're, you're again, you're saying that I, I don't care about myself, my image, that again, I'm, set, I'm consecrated, I'm set unto the Lord. So the God said they wouldn't cut their hair. And also it would be the only of the three things you weren't supposed to do. It would really be the only outward sign of the vow of a, of a Nazarite vow. And the last one was no contact with the dead, with a dead person, with a carcass, anything to do with death. And so you weren't to go to a cemetery. You couldn't go to a funeral. If your own parents died, you weren't allowed to, to be at the funeral near the dead body. Definitely not to touch the dead body. And again, you know, Jesus said, if you don't hate mother, father, brother, sister for my namesake, that you're not worthy of the gospel. Now, does Jesus want you to hate your mom? No, that's not the point. But Jesus does want you to put him before your mom. Right? Like God comes before your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, that God is first in every area. God is first before your spouse. Some of you put that in your pipe and smoke it. You guys don't like that one, right? Oh, here's another one. My sister hates this one. God comes before your kids. Your husband comes before your kids. And God comes before your kids. So your husband, your spouse first, then your, then your kids, God first. Then your spouse, then your kids. That's biblical. That's a biblical line. So again, it was just kind of that God is first. No uh, um, consecration to the Lord. So verse number, where are we at? Six. So the woman came and told her husband saying, a man of God came to me and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God. Very, very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from and, I did, and he did not tell me his name. Now, if your wife came home and told you that, what would you say to her? I'd say, what do you mean you didn't ask his name? What's wrong with you? You didn't ask him who he was from, his name. You didn't ask nothing. Like, you could have at least, like, figured some of that out. Like, goodness gracious, give me some details, woman. But good good thing that Manoah was, was a better man than me. And, and, uh, <clears throat> and he said to me, she's telling him the story, um, behold, now you shall conceive and bear a son and... Bear a son now, drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the children shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to this day, from this day to his death. And then Manoah prayed, and the Lord said, O oh my Lord, and he said, O oh my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do, for the child will be born. So, you know, I, to me, I think, I think that Manoah's response was biblical. I think it was good. I think that rather than, you know, get upset with his wife because she didn't ask his name or who he was and where he was from, she, that, and, and Manoah didn't question her, he didn't get in an argument with his wife. He doesn't say anything to his wife, right? The only thing that's recorded is that he begins to pray and ask God how to proceed. And, you know, I think, I think there's some wisdom in there for us as husbands. You know, if your wife comes home and she gives you a concern before you, you know, you belittle her concern or you, you, you know, you tell her she's a worry ward or you, you know, you're upset because she didn't gain more information and, you know, take it to the Lord and, and ask God what you're supposed to do. And that's what Manoah did. He just went to the Lord and he began to pray and he said, send the guy back, send the angel back and let me know what else we should do. And I, uh, you know, and the other thing I, I like about her is, is I think her faith was good. You know, she didn't question the, the man of God. 
She didn't doubt. There's no, there's no really record of, of, of hers asking for any assurance or anything. Just really just a faith, a good faith. And her husband kind of the same thing. And that's why I said, I think in the overall, you know, as I read through this, you know, her, Samson's parents in the condition of Israel that they were in, by all rights, would not necessarily be godly people, right? They, they're a people of God who had been whoring after other gods now for 40 years as the Philistines are ruling and reigning over them. They, they are in some respect pagan in their worship. They're pagan in their, in their idolatry. They're pagan in their, their multi-god and pantheism that would take place in Israel. They, they, they don't have and not recorded for us anywhere where there's a, a devotion or a prayer life. You don't see anywhere through this story, except for here now, we see Manoah now who's going to go and begin to pray. But, but previous to that, you don't see them seeking God and then God responding. You see God initiating the, 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 the thing and coming to them. And so, but I think they were good people. I think they were good parents. I think that all the way through, they loved Samson and they did what God told them to do. And for the most part, I think they had a good testimony. And it says um, in verse 10, then the woman, or I'm sorry, in verse nine, and God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God came to the woman again and said, came to the, to the woman again. And as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband was not with her. And the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, look, the man who came to me the other day just now appeared to me. So she showed up again, but she didn't show up to Manoah who was praying. She showed up again to the woman. This time, women, she ran to her husband and told him, hey, hey, he's here again. So this time she goes and gets her husband before she, she has conversation with him. And it says, so the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, verse 13, I'm sorry, Manoah said, verse 12, now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. So basically Manoah says, how should we raise this boy? And what, what further information can you give me um, as the angel comes? And what does the angel tell him? What's the angel's response in verse 13? Careful to do what? The things that he already told him to do, right? Did he give more information? What, what, did, what did he say, basically? He said, be careful to do what I already told you to do. You want to do, you know, what, what you know, God told Abraham? He said, go do what I already told you to do, and then I'll give you the next step. And so many times in our life, it's like, you, you want God to lay out for you the next 50 years of your life. Well, sure, who wouldn't want that? What faith do you need to walk in a plan that God's laid out? But God's not going to do that. He never does. We don't see that in Scripture. God gives you enough. But here's what's going to happen in their lives. If, if you'll do the first step, you worry so much about the second step and the third step and the fourth step. But if you do the first one, guess what happens to the second step? takes care of itself. It, you find it out. It, you, 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 you meet the will of God. I can remember standing right here, you guys, and telling you one day, you know, if you don't know what the will of God is for your life, you need to jump on it with two feet and you need to go out. And then I remember coming back the next week, or maybe it took me longer than a week and being convicted that, that I didn't feel good about what I told you guys. Because I gave this idea that if you don't know what God's long-term vision and plan is for your life, that you need to seek God to, to, to get vision and for God to get what's the call of God on your life and to know it. But, but I, I don't think that's biblical. And I, I came back a, weeks later and I said, listen, I want to I redo. Can we give me a redo on that? Here's what I'm saying today and what I still say today. You want to know what the will of God for your life is? Ask God what the will of your life is for the next 15 minutes of your life. 
and be obedient to follow God's will for your life for the next 15 minutes. And don't worry about anything beyond that. And then when that 15 minutes is up, do it again. And then when that 15 minutes is up, do it again. And really, you know, the study of the life of Abraham is one of the best studies that we have for the will of God in somebody's life. Because Abraham went at, at, at points in his life 10 years where God gave him a commandment and then waited 10 years for, for Abraham to be obedient. And then when Abraham did what God told him to do 10 years before, God shows up and gives him the next step of obedience. And, and, then, and then you see Abraham's life where it's, he's moving and he's progressing. And then you see him sitting at red lights in his life where he's doing nothing because he hasn't, done, he hasn't completed what God told him to do. But every time he completes another task, then God gives him the next one. And so here the angel of the Lord doesn't lay out for Manoah any further information. He says, I already told your wife what to do. Stay away from drink. Stay away from these things. You're going to have a son. And, and then when the son is born, I'm, I'm, I'll be there. I'm, I'm not leaving you. You know what I share with you guys on Sunday? It's new to me. So good. Oh, man, it's so good. Do you, do you know the promise of God that's repeated any more than any other promise in the word of God for your life? You have to go and count them, but I promise you, this is so good. Number one promise of God to his people has nothing to do with salvation, has nothing to do with heaven, hell, has nothing to do with prosperity, with um, healing, forgiveness. The number one promise of God in the word of God to you from God repeated more time than any other, not even about love. I will be with you. Number one promise of God in the word of God. More times than anything else does God say to his people, I will be with you. What did Jesus say? And lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. This is one of the last things he said in the gospel of Matthew. And lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. And what the word of God says and what God said in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the future Testament, and the one before that is I, I'm just kidding about all that. I will be with you. I will be with you. And so this is the idea. I'm going to be with you. I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. I'm giving you this step. And then you can move on. And then in verse 14, um, it says, she, she may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, all that I command her to do observe. And then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and we will prepare a young goat for you. So Manoah's searching for information, basically. So the idea of detaining him and preparing a young goat for him, it, it, it's kind of Jewish culture. Like, let's, let's have a meal and then we'll sit down and what do we do at a meal? We talk and I, and I have some time to get some more information from you, you know, and work on the deal. And so Manoah's like, okay, well, let's have a meal then. You don't want to tell me anything else. That's chill, you know. And so then in verse 16, it says, and the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, you can detain me, homie, but eat your food all you want, but you ain't getting any more information. And then in verse 17, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, finally, somebody asks, what is your name? And again, what is the idea of what is your name? More information. So Manoah is still pressing. He's still asking. God bless him. Like he's, he's searching, you know. And again, for somebody to reveal their name is um, more information. And it, it also gives you a little bit of a. And now he can start calling him by his name. What's your name? Sean. Hey, Sean, come here. Let me tell you something. Hey, Sean, let me know the thing. And, you know, use somebody's name in a certain way. And, and even in Jewish culture and even today, you know, knowing somebody's name gives you a little bit of power in the conversation. And a little bit of. And Manoah is really working this deal to try to get some more information. 
And then it says, And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? And so that's funny because God says this in several different times that, you know, you're not going to know my name or he answers a question. Remember when the angel of the Lord showed up to um, Joshua and Joshua said, are you for me or against me? And the angel of the Lord said, no. <laughs> I said, are you for me or against me? No, you know, wrong question, wrong answer. And so um, we haven't brought it up yet, but hopefully by now you're gathering that this particular angel of the Lord. And then one of the things that you can notice um, even in, all the way through, but look at look at the the word Lord in um, verse 18, what, what's, what's unique about it? It's all capitals. Whenever you see the capital L-O-R-D in the Bible, what does that mean? That's the tetragrammaton, right? The capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is the, is the name of God. It's, it's what we call, again, the tetragrammaton. You know that thing, the, the Y-H-V-H or the Y-H-W-H, sometimes you see it. And, and, and we don't know what the, the vowels are in the name of God because the Jews, so they didn't mispronounce the name of God so that you couldn't curse the name of God. So that's why you even see to this day when Jews write God in English, they write G-D, right? Because they don't want it. So in, in, the, in the Hebrew name, and so we say the name of God is Yahweh. That adds the, the vowels. But do we know that for sure? Not really. The Jeho- Jehovah Witnesses falsely say that that the w-h-v-h when you add the consonants is jehovah but the only problem is there's no j pronunciation in the hebrew so there's a yah pronunciation for j but no j pronunciation so so the name of god cannot be in hebrew jehovah is it Yehovah? Is it is it Yahweh? You know, I don't know. We use the term Yahweh, but basically, the the capital Y H V H, the capital L O R D in the Bible, is the name of God. That's God. And so here we have the angel of the Lord. And so when you see this, this is none other than an Old Testament, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Sometimes we call it a Christophany. Some people in these these events, because they don't want to apply it to Jesus Himself showing up, they call it a Theophany. And a theophany is an Old Testament appearance or an appearance of God um, in the Old Testament. But, you know, specifically, this is a Christophany. This is Jesus. And so, you know, Jesus, um, prior to some people's belief, he, he was definitely born as a little baby. What did, what did, uh, what did he say? Eight pound, nine ounce little baby Jesus? Yeah. What was his name? <laughs> Ricky Bobby. Yeah. A little baby Jesus. He liked to pray to little baby Jesus, but little baby Jesus wasn't, you know, in, he wasn't born. He wasn't created. He became a man in, in the, in the tomb, but Jesus has, it has no beginning and no end is the alpha and the omega, you know? And, and so we have here the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself, prior to God sending him um, to be born in a manger, appearing in the Old Testament. And so this again, um, and it just, you know, I don't know, you can maybe make a connection if you want to Isaiah chapter 9 um, here in verse 18, because the angel says, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? And what does Isaiah 9 say about the, about the name of the Lord? Or what does he say? For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting 
Father, Prince of Peace. And so one of the titles of the names of God from Isaiah 9 is wonderful. Whether you draw that a connection to Isaiah 9 or not, it doesn't matter. It's still he calls himself, seeing my name is wonderful and my name is awesome. But he's still not going to give it to him. And then I think I missed the I am, huh? I skipped that one. Back up real quick because it just goes in with the same um, verse number 11. Manoah arose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man and he said to him, are you the man whom, who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. Now, it's not capitalized, rightfully so, because he's not saying there, um, ego on me, right? And where does the great I am? You know, you want to know who, who God is? Hey, put the TOD on the, on the clock, please. The, um, you want to know who God is? You know, I love this. You, you don't have to wonder. Jesus tells you seven times in the Gospel of John, I am blank. I am, I am. You want to know who God is? Jesus told you seven times who I am. But that I am is capital I, capital A, capital M. And as you know, where it comes from is when Moses um, saw the burning bush and he was going to Pharaoh and he said, hey, I got to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. But I need to tell Pharaoh who sent me. Who should I tell him sent me? What's your name? And, and Moses talking to God, asked God, what is your name? And then the answer that the burning bush that God spoke to Moses was, he said, I am that I am. He said, ego a me. And basically, that's the name of God. I am. What I am what, we ask, right? Like, it kind of seems like a lame name. Like, you are? I am? You am what? <laughs> would, be, would be helpful, but, you know, the answer is that the name means I am the becoming one. I am, you know, what is your need? For everybody, it's different, right? I become the need that you have and the ego. I mean, and then when Jesus said in the New Testament, um, talking to the Pharisees, Jesus said, um, before Abraham was, what did Jesus say? Ego on me. And what did the Pharisees who were in the audience, what did they do? When Jesus said that to a crowd, he said, before Abraham was, ego on me, they did something. The Pharisees did. They picked up rocks and they were getting ready to kill him. Read it. Why did they pick up rocks and getting ready to kill him? They understood very clearly that he was claiming to be the same God that spoke to Moses in the burning bush. Okay? You can share that with some of your um, neighbors and put, ask them to put that in their pipe and smoke it. Because he, he was the great I am. So, all right, all that to say, the angel of the Lord here is, the, is Jesus. A few more minutes. Let's, let's try to finish. I was hoping to finish 15 tonight, you guys. We're going to have to move to do that. It says, um, and it happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in a flame, of the altar, and when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces toward the ground. And when the angel of the Lord appeared no more, Manoah and his wife, and then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord, or in other words, then he knew he was God. And Manoah said to his wife, Well, surely die because we have seen God. And so, um, Exodus 33:20, it says that no man will see God and live, no man will see the face of God and live. And so he says, We just saw God, we're going to die. Now, they, did they see God? Maybe a little trick question. Did they see God? Let's try again. Did they see God? Absolutely, they saw God. If they saw Jesus, they saw God. But what did they not see? They didn't see the face of Father God. They didn't see Exodus thirty-three twenty. No man shall see the face of God and live. They saw the second person of the Trinity. Right. Did, did, did men see the face of God when they saw Jesus? Did they? You guys aren't sure? 
Absolutely they did, right? That's God. Jesus is as God as they come and they saw the face of God and didn't die. And, and, and so, you know, what did, what, did, what did Philip say? He said, he said, show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. We'll believe everything about you, Jesus. We'll believe you're God. We'll believe you're from God. Just show us the Father and, and it'll be sufficient for us. And what did Jesus say to Philip? He said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and, when, and when Moses was given a blank check, two blank checks in the scripture, right? Who were the blank checks given to? Moses is one. And no, David's son, Solomon, was given a blank check. God says, anything you want, I'll give it to you. And Solomon asked for wisdom. And God said, since you asked for wisdom and not riches and other things, I'll also give you riches and all those other things. Two blank checks in the Bible. Right. We all we all uh, fantasize one day that God would show up at our house and say, anything you want, you can have it. Just ask. Well, the, the, twice he does that. The first one is Moses. And, and, and when when he asked Moses, Moses said, I want to see you. Why? Because when you love somebody, you want to see them. It's natural, right? How many of you guys, what did you do when you were courting your 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 now wife or your now husband or, you know, what did you do? You spent all day with them and then you got home and you called them on the phone and you talked until three in the morning until you fell asleep with the phone on your face, drool running down the side of your lips, you know, and you woke up in the morning and you wanted to spend time with them because when you love somebody, you want to see them. And God said, Moses said to God, I want to see you. And so God takes Moses in Exodus and he hides him in the cleft of the rock because if, if Moses actually seen the face of God, he would die. And so Moses, the Bible says, it's kind of this weird thing that um, God covered Moses' face as he passed by so he couldn't see God. But then what he allowed Moses to see, which was all Moses could see in flesh and live, was the train of God's glory or his robe. In other words, it's like when a boat goes by and, the, and it leaves a wake. When God passes, he leaves a wake and he allowed Moses to see that. And that's, that was the best he could do for Moses' request without killing Moses in the flesh and seeing God. But, but to see Jesus is different. We can see the face of God and not die. And so here they did see God. They saw the angel of the Lord. They didn't die because they saw the second person of the Trinity. And the promise is the face of God. So what does that mean? Will we get to see the face of God when we go to heaven? First time, right? Anybody in flesh, right? We won't be in flesh anymore. Because your flesh can't handle it. That's how good it is. That's how pretty he is. No, I don't know. That's how awe he is. Pretty just don't do it justice, right? Um, all right, two more chapters and then we're done. So I like it. Verse 23, real quick. His wife actually has common sense. And she says, you dummy, shut up. If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would have done it already. If the Lord desired to kill us, he would not have accepted our burnt offering and grain offering from the hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things as these in this time. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. In verse 25, I want you to highlight a couple of these for me, or at least underline them somehow. Circle the verses one way I highlight in my Bible. And it says, And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him, and Manea, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtal. So, um, you know, she says, God's not going to do that. He wouldn't have done those if, you know, he wanted to kill us, he would have done that already. He's not going to do all these things. We're fine. Calm down. You know, but again, coming from the really uh, a lack of devotion between God and his people during this period of their history, Manoah would not have had a real working relational knowledge of God to where he would have understood this. And so in his pagan, you know, kind of 
background from where they were as a nation. He said, oh, God's going to kill us. And then Samson is born and the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. We're going to see this phrase multiple times. The spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. Hey, I want you guys to find something for me. It's a little bit difficult to find, but it's Zechariah chapter four. Normally I say, just hang out and I'll get back there. But if you find that blank place in your Bible between the Old and the New Testament, just back up two books. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, and the one before that is Zechariah. And Zechariah chapter 4 in verse 6, I want you to know this verse. I want you to have it. Many of you do. You know it. I want to highlight it. But it, it really is, um, I hate this word. I use it all the time, but I need a new one. It's kind of bugging me. The mantra. It, it's really the mantra for um, a lot of Christian living. It really is the mantra for um, who we are as a people um, in the New Testament. And it's something that's, that's so biblical and so ingrained in everything that we are and do that, that we need to have it memorized. We need to be in the forefront of it. But in Isaiah or in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6, the word of the Lord came to Zerubbabel, not to be confused with Jerubbabel, which is Gideon, Zerubbabel with a Z and not a J, is somebody different. And, he, and the Lord said, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You guys there? Four, six, let's do it together. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So, so really everything that happens, you guys, in our life, it's not by your might, it's not by your power, but by, the, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And, and really, I think, I think the defining um, idea of Samson's life is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And every time Samson is about to do, almost every time Samson is about to do some amazing feast, we read this in here where it says the spirit of the Lord was upon him. The spirit of the Lord came upon him. The spirit of the Lord moved upon him mightily. And it's the spirit of the Lord. You know, Samson does some pretty amazing feats. He, he, he catches uh, 300 foxes and ties their tails together and sets them on fire and puts them in a field. He goes out and he's angry with the deal that he made and he kills 30 Philistines and takes their clothes from them. He takes, at one point, he jawbone of a donkey and he kills a thousand Philistines. In another place, he's in a city and they trap him in. They're trying to, trying to, trying to trap him. He puts the gates of the city on his back the whole gates, poles and everything, however big this gate was, Samson picks the gate of the city up, puts it on his back, and he runs 38 miles. And, and so, like, you know, the jawbone of a donkey to kill a thousand men. You know, I, I, talk, I, I always say on these stories, like, think about it for a minute. Like, if I gave you the jawbone of a donkey and I tied a thousand men up with their hands behind their back and their legs tied and you had to kill them, like, by the time you got to like 700, you, you know, I don't think you could physically have the strength, you know. And this dude is fighting a thousand men and, and he kills them, you know. And then at the end of his life, the way Samson's story ends, most of you know, right? They tie him between two pillars and we see it in movies all the time. And, and the entire um, temple of Dagon is there and the Philistines are having this big, huge party. And by this time, they've ripped Samson's eyes out and, and they tie him between these poles and led by a little boy because he's blind and they want to show. And he says one last time in the end of his life, God, give me strength, but not this time so I can live, but this time so I can die for your glory. And he pushes the pillars of the temple of Dagon and the entire temple of Dagon falls and 3000 Philistines die and more die in his death than did in his life. These amazing feats of strength. 
And whenever you see Samson portrayed in a movie, they just did one recently, the Bible, you guys see, they had a section where they covered Samson. You see how they portrayed him? He's this big, huge black dude, looks like Mr. America. I mean, he looks like just whatever, you know, like Arnold at his, on his heyday, you know, times 10. And, and because of this great strength that Samson had, you know, but, and I don't know. I don't know historically what Samson, well, when we get to heaven, we'll get to maybe see what he looked like. And, you know, maybe we'll get an idea of what he was in the flesh. But is it possible that Samson was just like little geeky looking dude that had these like little pencil arms and stick legs and, you know, just look like this the nerd. And you just come and you slap him around and pick on him. And, you know, when Delilah comes in, um, she says to him, Samson, what is the key to your great strength? Now, if he was just this ripped monkey with no neck and just tore out of his head and, you know, he'd just be like, this is the, you know, what do you mean is the key to my great strength? Look at these, you know, what a Hulk Hogan boast of 24 inch biceps, you know, Samson with his 48 inch biceps or something, you know, like, what do you, what do you mean is the key to my great strength? So not, not to say he maybe he wasn't physically built. I don't know. I, I like to think of Samson as a man's man and look kind of cool, but possible maybe he was just just twiggy looking dude and that's why everybody freaked out like he was unassuming because the point again like we we studied in Gideon right and Gideon's 300 was that God was going to get the glory when the things happen so Samson's biceps couldn't necessarily receive the glory when he did these amazing feats and his and his physical prowess of his body and, and that Delilah couldn't understand and the people couldn't necessarily understand what was his where his great strength came from but the answer to that question is what we just read it, Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And then I asked you to highlight verse number um, number 6, right? Verse number 25 in chapter 13. Verse number 6, if we, got, we haven't even got there yet. In uh, chapter 14. All right, we haven't got there yet. That's why you don't got to highlight highlighted 6 in verse 14. Are we in verse 14, verse 1? Chapter 14, verse 1? All right, come on. We're only going to do two more chapters in the next three minutes. Now, Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman of Timnah and the daughters of the Philistines. And so he went up to his father and his mother. And he said, I have seen a woman in Timnah, the daughter of the Philistines. And now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. And his father and his mother said to him, is there no woman among the daughters of your own brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a filly from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Give me this filly, for she pleases me well. So um, Samson's kind of whining here. And his dad is giving him a, a biblical principle of life. Do not be what? Unequally yoked together. She was a filly. Be, she was a Philistine woman. Um, do not be unequally yoked together with a non-believer. You know, Lydia just taught it on Lady Study on Tuesday night. Second um, Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be unequally yoked together with a non-believer. Now that is um, more difficult in some places than other. We happen to live in a community that's, that's less than 1% evangelical Christian. So finding um, Christian companionship in a, in a place that's like ours, it requires faith. And really the lesson is that, that, that we have to have faith and believe that God can do it and God can provide it. And, and it's a lack of faith to be disobedient to it. And it's a lack of faith. But really, it's a biblical principle, you guys, from Genesis to Exodus. And the number one problem with the children of Israel throughout all their history was, was the, the, the Philistine woman. And not only the Philistine woman, but the pagan woman, basically. The, the women outside of their faith. 
when Barak came to curse the nation of Israel and Balaam offered him all kinds of money or the other way around, right? Uh, Barak offered Balaam all kinds of money and, and Balaam came and he tried to curse the people of Israel three times and only blessing came out. And Barak said, man, you Balaam, you prophet of Israel, you're an idiot. I, I have the power to make you a very wealthy man. And he was caught up in that and he wanted the money and he came. So he finally comes and Jesus calls it in the book of Revelation, the doctrine of Balaam that's, that's, that's evil. And so Balaam says to the people, he says to, to Barak and the, these pagan nations, he says, listen, I can't curse the people, but here's what you do cause the young maidens, the pagan women, um, to dress up all sexy and, and go through the, the camp of Israel and then let the, let the sons of Israel take them and have sex with them and then God will curse them for their sin. And that's exactly what happened is that they came through. So just, just to illustrate that, that throughout all of, of, of biblical history, one of the biggest problems that we as God's people have is marrying outside of our faith. And it's a problem from Genesis to Revelation. It's not going to go away. God deals with it in the New Testament. He deals with it in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, again, we have a real sensitivity to it here in Utah. We have kids that are, you know, I'm in a position in my life where I have a son that's starting to date for the first time. And, you know, and, and I'm there. I'm with you guys. And, you know, I have you guys ask me from time to time, should my kids, you know, you know, and, and again, but, but the biblical truth is that we're not to. And people say, oh, well, you're exclusionist or you're, you know, you're prejudiced or you're wrong or, but, but it's just, it's biblical. And who you marry is the biggest decision of your life, you know? And listen, let me tell you men and women, you girls and boys that are in here something. When you marry a boy or a girl, you also marry their family. So you better like their family, you know? And, and, and it's just, it's just God's wisdom and it takes faith. But you know, when you do it right, you look at Matt and Rachel, I always love, love, love to be a part of what God did in their lives. And one of the, one of the biggest blessings of really being in Utah was just getting the small part of being a part of what God did in their lives. Two young people who love Jesus. The cool part for me is they met in church, you know, like that's, that's where it's supposed to be. And they did it right. And they both loved Jesus and God brought it together. Beautiful couple and, and, and victory in Jesus for Two young people who did it right and waited and allowed God to, to, to do that. And so do not be unequally yoked together with non-believers. Um, I could go on and on and on. Um, let's just one more thing. You know, um, sometimes, and, and, and believe me, even back home, you guys, and I think it's, again, it's harder here because we, we are in a community where we're such a minority. But even back home where we were a majority, where, where evangelical population, the community I, I came from was, was huge. Um, you know, the same thing would happen or we'd have a young girl and she would, you know, meet a boy and she was raised in our church her whole life and loved Jesus. And the boy was not a Christian, but she said like, I'm a Christian and he's not, but I'm going to date him and, and make him a Christian. Like it's missionary dating. We call it. Well, listen, no missionary dating either. Like, like, because why? And, and not to say, listen, I wouldn't 100% exclude a relationship with a non-believer waiting on the will of God. But nine times out of 10, if you take a glass of clean water and you take a glass of dirty water and you pour the dirty water into the clean water, does the, does the dirty water get clean in the clean glass or does the clean glass become dirty? 
The clean glass becomes dirty. And so many times in, in, for, for Christian people, young people or even old people, that, that they don't make the other person a Christian. The, the, the non-Christian pulls them the other way is what we see happening more times than not. And for that reason, we, 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 we definitely don't um, encourage that and, and, and like to see that. And like I said, I don't completely, you know, I want to be careful that I'm not so dogmatic that, that God can never work in certain situations. But, you know, the, the bottom line is, you find somebody who was a Christian the day you met him. And the thing is, if you find somebody who's more Christian than you are, you know, you find somebody who's spiritually stronger than you are, not somebody who's nominal or weak. And, you know, when, when I, I was talking to one lady and, you know, and, and she was asking me about a situation with a relationship and she was trying to justify whether or not she was unequally yoked or this person was a Christian. And I said, where, where were they going to church and serving God when you met them? What church did, did he belong to when you guys met? Where was he serving God when you met? Well, he wasn't, but he is now. Well, duh, he is now because he likes you. But give it a month, you know, and who knows if he still will be. All right. You guys are like closing your Bibles already. All right. I guess we're done. Um, I guess we're done. All right. It's 831. Let's be done. Too much. We were supposed to cover three chapters tonight. I think we covered one. Let's stand. Maybe, maybe I'll just go to sleep tonight believing that uh, the spirit took over and it was God's will that we talked about some of those things. And, and, and then we ended on do not be unequally yoked together with non-believers. And, you know, in the bottom, at the end of the day, um, in your life, in my life, in my kids' lives, in your kids' lives, you know, it, it's trusting the Lord. It's, it's just believing that God can do it in a difficult situation. I, I have empathy and sympathy for us. Um, and, and also, you know, I tell people, and I told that, that woman that I, was, that I used as an example without giving her name, um, you know, because she, she would feel sometimes like guilty that she wanted a husband. And I told her, listen, God gave you that desire. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It's, it's God-given. God's given you the desire for companionship, for intimacy, for, for all of those things that go along with that relationship. God put that in your heart, and it's godly, and it's right, and good. And Satan's perverted some of it, but don't ever make an apology. Don't ever excuse, um, feel bad for feeling that way. We're all going to feel that way. We're supposed to feel that way. And, and heightened, right, in, in, in certain points of life. But really, all through life, we want that companionship at least. And if God's given you that desire, you have to believe that God's going to fulfill and meet that desire. And what, what's going to happen is Satan's going to bring a counterfeit. And, and, and Satan's going to bring something that's going to seem like the right thing. But, if, but, but, but it won't really be the blessing that God intends for you until you wait and until you allow God to bring that blessing into your life. And that requires trusting the Lord. But again, that's what the Bible's about, right? The Bible's about story after story after story telling you and I that we can trust God, that God can do the impossible. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Jesus, I thank you that um, this time tomorrow I'll be in Hawaii. Um, I hope that, uh, Lord, I pray for, uh, thank you that, that the church will be in great hands with Pastor D being here. And Lord, we pray your blessing upon this coming week and the guys getting together and doing some fun stuff and um, for the church on Sunday, for discipling. I, I thank you, Lord God, for the word of God that we studied tonight in the short section we covered an introduction to Samson's life. And this young man who's going to, Lord, have lots of struggles with women. And he's this, this first relationship that he wants with this Philistine woman, he's going to get it. And it's not going to go the way that he wants. And 
And really the rest of his life is going to be a struggle with pagan women leading up to the story of Delilah that eventually ruins his life, God. And um, Lord, in not trusting you and breaking all the vows that you called him. And Lord, he didn't start well, but by the grace of God, he finished well, Lord, in his life. And so, Father, we, we thank you for how the story applies to our lives and pray, Lord, that, that we can continue to be encouraged and grow in your word. And the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And so Wednesday nights, God, we, we just try to put the word of God into our hearts to increase that faith that we can trust you in other areas of our lives. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Thank you, guys.